to Marvelicious Toys. Hosted by Justin and his amazing friends, Arnie and Marjorie. We bring you news and reviews of Marvel toys, statues, and more. Because not all Marvel collections can be bagged and boarded. They're not just toys. They're Marvelicious. Hello and welcome to issue 43 of Marvelicious Toys. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie. I'm Justin. Hey guys, it's Jerry joining here again this week. And we are here with a bonus issue. We're like Amazing Spider-Man. We come out three times a month. This one might have a variant cover, chase cover to track down too. You might have to download it two or three times just to get it. Can I get a lenticular one? <laughs> <laughs> Digital lenticular. We're going to talk lenticular. I guarantee this episode. Yeah, I, I said that for a reason, yes. <laughs> the Secret Wars. <laughs> because... We have had so much new stuff coming out every week to talk about that we wanted to take a moment and talk about some other stuff that we've actually been buying recently and had some interesting experiences doing so. Marjorie and I went up to Seattle for our 10th anniversary, and while it was supposed to be a toy-free trip... That's I did not set foot in a Walmart or Target or Toys R Us the entire time on our eight-day trip, nine-day trip. That's true. Did you, did you walk on your hands in the Walmart? I did. I'm pretty okay. crafty like that. <laughs> oh, you took the hover-rounds. That's how you got it. <laughs> but first, we had talked in our last issue about the Walmart Spider-Man event that happened on June 15th, the day our show came out. Marjorie and I went to the midnight event at our Walmart. So imagine going into Walmart at an excessively early hour. Or late, depending on how you look at it. There's no display. No. There's nothing on the TVs. No. The employees have absolutely no clue what you're talking about. No. It was a debacle. Yeah, they just were clueless, had no idea. They had the big sign out, Spider-Man exclusive footage, but no one knew anything. I asked the guy at the front store, nothing. Showed him the sign, nothing. He's like, oh, I don't know. He says, it means tomorrow. I said, but it says midnight as of yesterday. He goes, I don't know. Eventually, we did get one. They put out the displays around midday. We saw the footage at a Walmart at a later showing, and my God, what a terrible terrible venue. Never watch a movie in Walmart. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> the sound is so low on the television so that you can still hear and talk while shopping that you could barely hear the clips and it's coming out of a hundred televisions. All cued differently. So it was like row, row, row your boat the whole way. And it was annoying. They were making overhead announcements while you're trying to watch this. Just not the ideal situation for this. I bet they don't do this again. No. And it's the same footage on the disc. Just give me the disc. Don't yes. make me watch it in a but bad But I had a way. fight for that disc for you. It was $3, and I don't mind paying for it, but here's the problem. No one knew what the hell I was talking about. I took them to the front of the store and showed them the sign. I don't think we got any, and you have a sign. And then finally they asked the manager of electronics, and there was a lot of whispering and looking at me and whispering back and forth. And then finally, all I heard was, just go get it for her. The next morning, we tried all three Walmarts in our area. None of them had done it right. Mm -mm. The comic book itself is a mini comic, which I was not expecting. I kind of thought it would be a full-sized reproduction, promotional item and all, I guess. What do I expect for three bucks? But the disc... It's worth it as a promotional item. It had some good making of stuff, stuff that'll probably all be on the Blu-ray when it comes out. But... Here's the problem. You really love 
Spider-Man, and this was an event. A poor event, yes. but an but event. But we got to play with the augmented reality app on the phone, which was kind of maddening. It just doesn't line up right. <laughs> Arnie, Marjorie, really? Star Wars, Blu-ray, Midnight, nothing open, nobody knows what's going on. You really went and tried that? I mean, don't you know? It just doesn't work, guys. I'm glad I uh, stayed home and got that extra sleep. All right, well, let's get to the main reason we're here. Old toys. Jerry, we have you with us because for those who may be listening for the first time, you do a segment for us called Timely Reviews, the ironically named segment for Timely Comics. Looking back at toys from Toy Biz primarily, old action figure lines that tied into the 90s TV series. And you even look at those TV series and DVD sets. But I felt that if we're going to talk about some older toys from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, you'd be the expert to have here and can tell us what we bought. Yeah, no, hey, I'm I'm really glad you guys invited me. This is, like, right up my alley. This is, like, one big, timely review issue. I'm really happy to be a part of it. I kind of feel, you know, I've been thinking about this. Like, I, I'm kind of like the bishop of the Marvelicious staff. I'm like, you know, I, I, I'm i really from the 90s and from the 80s, and I'm, like, forced to be in this present time, and I'm thrilled that my old technology still exists. But So, yeah, let's, let's talk it up. I'm interested to see what you guys found. Now, Jerry, do you bleed that weird, creamy, milky white substance when you get cut, or is that just more uh, of a... I won't tell. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm actually glad to have you here too, Jerry, because for me, personally, I don't go back all the way to the toy biz days. Those were the days when I looked at figures, and I think a lot of you know that I'm kind of a an articulation snob. But every time we have you on the show and you do a segment, you have so much passion and all this for these figures that I start getting interested in them. Every time I listen to you, I'm like... Man, that does sound cool. You know? Thank you. you. That's the intent. So, yes. (laughs) So, I got to tell you, good job. For my guy who always looks the other way at these older toys, you make it so I'm interested in them. So, I'm glad to have you on board for this. Well, Justin, I appreciate that because I know you and I are like polar opposites on the articulation uh, scale. So, it's good that we can get together and, you know, not fight. As I mentioned earlier, Marjorie and I went to Seattle and had a great trip, saw the Space Needle, saw the EMP Museum, saw the Avengers on IMAX. Wait, was that part of the trip? (laughs) No, but we did. But one of the big things that I posted on Facebook when it happened is we had some friends who live up in Seattle. These are friends who we meet every year at Comic-Con. Amy and Ryan and Gus and a great group of people up there, some of whom we were meeting for the first time, some of whom we've known for years. Well, they decided to take us on a toy tour of the Seattle area. And one of the places they took us, I was really excited to go. It was Lynn's Toy Stable. And what it is, it's a wonderful woman named Lynn. She's got this, she has a horse farm. And one of the buildings out there has the most amazing collection for sale. Just random things, great condition of pretty much any toy line you would ever, ever want to buy. It's just stuff from old Star Wars toys to old Marvel toys. They had the Cosmic Key from the Masters of the Universe movie in there that they're selling for $10,000, the actual one used in the movie. Arnie wouldn't buy it for me because I love that movie. And (laughs) I I gave you something else that trip that's better than a Cosmic Key. You might be right. But just amazing stuff. It's just, oh my gosh. And she does have a website presence over on eBay. So if you're ever looking for some great quality toys, look up Lynn's Toy Stable. She's really worth it. And that's in Tacoma, just south of Seattle. 
Is it Lynn's Toy Stable or Lynn's Toys Table? Toy Stable. Stable like a horse stable. Yes. Gotcha. So that's why I mentioned she had a horse farm. <laughs> Her website is Toy Stable or ToysTable.com, depending on however you want to look at it. You can see the store we went to and a link to all their eBay auctions and their eBay store and everything. Well, we went the first day and our friends there, they're Star Wars friends, and Marjorie and I bought some Star Wars items and... We'd gone to some other places and found some other toys. We found some of the early Marvel Legends and things, but I didn't buy any of them. We went to an old arcade and saw the old Spider-Man four-player arcade game that I never knew existed. I knew about the X-Men one, never knew about the Spider-Man one. But honestly, I was trying to keep my Star Wars cred up, and so I just kind of, when we looked at Marvel, I really had to want something in order to buy it, even though they all know that I have a big Marvel collection of Marvelicious toys. But they took us to the toy stable, and I could not help but be more awed by the Marvel aisle than even the Star Wars aisle. The Star Wars aisle had a bunch of older vintage figures and things, many of which I had, a lot loose, a lot of stuff from Power of the Force, you know, some of the more modern stuff. But the Marvel aisle had stuff I couldn't believe, including a huge Secret Wars area. I'm, I'm talking, Jerry, you usually talk toy biz. This is Mattel. This is 80s. This is the first dedicated line of Marvel toys. Yeah, no, I mean, when I started Time Review as a segment here, I mean, I had three things in mind. Toy Biz, Mego, and I'll get around to that Secret Wars thing because it was, you're right, It's it was the first, let's call it, little action figure line for Marvel, and it's weird but kind of cool when you think about the history of it. So awesome that you found something like that. I'm here. I am jealous and thinking, all right. I know I got to. I, I know I got to pick up a few of these things to talk about them properly in the show. And you might be pushing me on the edge, and I guess that's fair payback, huh? <laughs> <laughs> You've sent me to Amazon.co.uk enough times, <laughs> and you're welcome. Well, she had some mint on card. She had a lot loose. The prices were all good. I looked at all of those, and I just I didn't want to spend a whole lot of money. We were on a trip, so we left, and I bought nothing. The next day, Marjorie <laughs> and I are driving around the Seattle area and planning the rest of our trip. We played it very much by ear. We decided to go to Portland, Oregon, where young people go to retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, the dream of the 90s is alive in Portland. It's a hipster's paradise. It is. And I asked, I said, are we having to be going back to Tacoma? She goes, yes, why? Could I go back to Lynn's Toy Stable? <laughs> yes, I did talk like Michael Sarah during it. <laughs> I was so embarrassed to be asking this that I broke out the Michael Sarah, my balls have retracted into my chest voice. <laughs> There's a visual I'm not going to easily get out of my head. <laughs> Well, I was just, I was just thinking I didn't know the voice had a name, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up walking out of there with a ton of Marvel toys. And it just wanted, this brings up the whole topic I want to talk about today, which is when you find these Marvel toys in places you don't expect, where you can often find them at good prices, you can always find just about anything on eBay, especially with a saved search. It may take some time and it may cost an arm and a leg, but Sometimes, like Justin's mentioned, when he goes on his toy runs there, and when we talk about going to, like, the Toy Man toy show, it's finding them in the thrill of the hunt that really is so much fun. Oh, yeah. Not knowing what you might find is 95% of the fun of it. You know, it's like if you're going into Walmart or Target, it's like, well, you're looking for Black Widow or you're looking for something you know you're looking for. And if you walk out, it wasn't there. But with these older places, it's like, hey, let's see what they have. 
see if there's stuff I didn't even know existed. Yeah, I mean, the best finds are the things that basically are answering the questions that nobody even asked, right? I mean, you, you, you probably aren't even, this is probably the last thing from your mind that you thought you'd run into on any given day. And, you know, those are, those are special. Yeah. And the fact that they were in such good condition and yes, they were loose, but if you know the Secret Wars figures, they came with little lenticulars that you'd put in a shield and there were three lenticulars per figure. And Lynn was so good. Here's a tip about Lynn's if you go in that area. If you pay cash, she wheels and deals, especially in larger amounts. So we hit an ATM and, I, and went and kept saying, so what about this Secret Wars figure? What about this Secret Wars figure? And some of them weren't priced and she had to look them up. And she, what she'd do is an eBay search to see what things sold for and then go with the lowest price. And then I wouldn't have to pay shipping. So right there... I'm at least not losing anything. I'm gaining not having to pay the shipping. And then she'd take money off the whole total based on that. But you had to pay to ship this all home. That was your mugs. I could have carried my toys. In fact, we did carry the biggest toy. It was your coffee mugs. How many coffee mugs did you buy on that trip? A lot. I think it's 25. Yeah, maybe. Oh, a bit. Is she pulling out the Michael Sarah voice now? <laughs> <laughs> Yep, her balls have retracted right into her chest. That's called a fixer. Hey, you got the image of your balls in the chest out of my head. Good job. <laughs> okay, so Arnie, I'm dying. What, I'm dying to know. Which Secret Wars figures did you walk out with? All right. We'll start with the loose ones. I think it was all of them. It was all she had. Now, she did have duplicates of some. She would mix and match to get me the most complete one that I could make. So in a couple cases, I may be missing a hologram or two. Uh, lent so I got lenticulars, holograms or something completely different. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did packaging nerd just rise to the surface again? So, okay. First, I'll start with the basic blue and red Spider-Man. Justin, he has a full five points of articulation. All <laughs> yeah, this, right. This is Kenner Star Wars <laughs> articulation, which is ironic given the, the source of the whole Secret Wars line, which I don't know if you know the, the, the history of the line or not. Yeah, because what's really interesting about that is the reason Mattel got in the Marvel game was because they didn't get the DC license. If you guys know the story, Kenner pulled together some really awesome figures for the DC line that, you know, we know today as the superpowers collection, right? They're five inch figures. They've, you know, really well detailed. They've got the action features. I mean, they're pretty darn good figures for the mid eighties, right? Well, Mattel lost out. They went to Marvel and I didn't actually didn't realize this until fairly recently, but the whole secret wars comic came from the toys. It was Mattel's idea to do that comic. And they went to Marvel with it, and they said, hey, look, we can do these figures. Let's do a story. And Marvel's like, all right, let's do it. Sounds good. Because they saw what was going on with DC, and they wanted to play in the game. So these lines, yeah, I'm not really sure which, you know, I'm guessing the DC ones hit first, the superpowers, just because it seemed like Kenner had the leg up. But they both were released in 1984, so I'm not really sure what happened first. But really, really interesting that Kenner who we know is the five-point articulation Star Wars line, kind of had this, the superior toy there. And Mattel has, you know, what I think are good-looking figures. But, yeah, there's not much thwip-thwip that's going on with the Spider-Man. Well, one of the other things about the Secret Wars line that I'd been learning in some research is that they were very much like He-Man and other toys of the time doing the standard buck repaint thing. You've got the same body on multiples of these figures with just different accessories or different paints as well, which is a complaint a lot of people have about the line. 
Dr. Octopus, who I don't have, is way too ripped for Dr. Octopus. Indeed, yes. <laughs> but let's we'll go through here. I did get the red and blue Spider-Man. He's iconic, you know, he's the figure. I did know the comics were based on the toys because I, I've always loved that comic. His paint is pretty good. He's a little worn on the back, but not too bad and really tight joints for such an old figure. Well, that's really impressive because the, the paint on Secret War figures, they're notorious for coming off. So, I mean, just looking at your pictures here, the, the, the webbing design on the red is, at least on the front, looks fantastic. Yeah, where he's worn is just a little on the back, actually. Next up, we talked about him last episode. I got a Baron Zemo, and he came with his gun and a couple of lenticulars in the shield. I had I got only... Uh, one of the lenticulars with him, but better than zero. So, Arnie, I'm a little confused. So each figure actually comes with multiple lenticulars that you slide in the shield? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, they all came with three, and you snap the shield, and you can change which one is displayed at any given time. Very nice. Hmm. Now let me ask you this while we're going through these. Like, growing up, I was aware of a lot of different toy lines, you know, from Star Wars to G.I. Joe to Arnie mentioned He-Man and, you know, even all the little weirder ones, you know, like Tron and all that stuff. I don't remember any of my friends having any of these figures. Now, I wonder if it was, do either of you know how popular this line was? Or was this something that was a little harder to find or maybe just not as popular amongst kids at the time? Well, I, I think there's a couple things going on. I mean, the line only lasted for about a year in the U.S., which I think when we get to some of Arnie's later figures, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the international releases. But I would say I, I knew some kids from, from back in the day that had these figures, but they were they're few and far between. I mean, most kids were Star Wars, G.I. Joe, He-Man, some on the superpowers. And I, I just personally, I don't think this line was very popular. Um, and I think the fact that last of the year probably speaks to that. And, you know, I, I remember growing up, I remember Spider-Man as Amazing Friends. I remember those cartoons that were on in the early 80s, but that was still actually a couple years before this. And I kind of wonder if DC had a little bit more momentum with Justice League. They even did a Super Powers cartoon briefly, but you have the Super Friends, and that was always on syndication. So, But even the Kenner line didn't last more than a couple years either. So I, I kind of wonder if comic book characters and action figure lines just didn't stand a chance in the G.I. Joe era. But, Justin, I'm right there with you because I'm thinking back to 1984, and I was getting out of Star Wars. It was reaching the depth of where it was really starting to hit. And in 84, it was, I was even past He-Man and things. I was starting to get into Transformers. I was looking at G.I. Joe and never collected them, but I was still very much in the toy aisle. I knew what toys were out there. I have no memory of this at all. You're right. I mean, Christmas of 84 was the breakout year for Transformers, too. So I don't think simple little action figures like this, unless you're a G.I. Joe, really could compete. Well, that, that makes me feel a little bit better. I thought maybe I was repressing some sort of weird childhood memory and totally blocking these figures out of my out of my mind. But it seems like it's more the norm than not. <laughs> but, Arnie, that's very interesting. I mean, if you look at this line as a whole, you take somebody like Baron Zemo, that's a premier toy for a character like that. Yeah, first time I ever got him. And I think it's also the f first time we got a Wolverine, isn't it? Yes. We never had a Mego Wolverine, which was really the only toy line before this, other than, like you talked about last time, the dress-up Captain Marvel, is it? Captain Action. Captain Action. That's right. Captain Marvel doesn't like to play dress-up. Sometimes he throws on that see-through galaxy outfit, you know? That's true, he does. <laughs> 
But yeah, I got Wolverine in his brown outfit, a little bit of paint wear on his mask. Like you said, these are known for having paint wear on them, but not bad. Which claws? Silver claws on this one. Oh, okay. Okay. There's never really a good reason of why both were released, but that was... You know, the black claws are kind of the obviously incorrect, so a little bit more desirable from a collectability perspective. I got a Doctor Doom, and this one, she had three <laughs> of them. I picked the one with the best chest paint, and it is pretty good. A little bit of wear on the bottom right corner, but not bad at all. I always chuckle when I think about the Doom from this line because he's so alien, robot, Doombot, I guess you could call it, versus a more traditional Doom. He's got a big garter right mid-thigh there. <laughs> well, him and Magneto both are kind of notorious for like, uh, hey, where's his cape? But yeah, whatever. The head looks pretty decent on the picture I'm looking at. It's a little bit flat in the face, but I mean, come on. We're dealing with toys from the 80s. I like these because they're so retro and because I'm cherishing them as the first line of Marvel figures, not because I want, you know, exact, accurate sculpts and detail. Oh, absolutely. That's that's the charm of this line nearly 30 years later from its release of just... I mean, this line has inspired pretty much everything we've seen since. I got Captain America with very good red and white stripes on the midriff. I did get Magneto, and Magneto has a cape. It's a soft goods cape. What he doesn't have are eyes. Okay, well, let, let me let me just say that someone donated that cape to that Magneto because he never came with a cape, not in the Secret oh. Wars line. Oh. You may have a Toy Biz cape that probably looks dashing with it. It looks really good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other funny thing about this line. None of them have eyes. I think the Iceman does, actually, but that, he's kind of, that's a little backwards. But, yeah, the, and the only one, of course, that makes sense for is, like, you know, Dr. Octopus because he's wearing glasses and Daredevil because, well, you know. Well, this is a great cape. Whoever made it, it just has a wire around the neck that just fits around this neck perfectly. It just snaps on. They didn't modify the figure in any way. That is tremendous. Okay. Looking at the picture, that's not the Magneto Toy Biz cape that I was speculating was. It's too dark but that's a good looking cape I'm, i'll give it that but no no it didn't come with secret wars that makes the figure like 10 times more awesome in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> i did get an iron man which is technically not tony stark no it's roadie right in the secret wars comic yes yes, yes. but doesn't the lenticular show stark though Let me look at what lenticular i have now this one is known for his arc reactor rubbing off. Mine has a little bit of rub off, but not total. Wait a minute. So is the arc reactor supposed to be yellow? Yeah. Oh, so it wasn't molded. I guess that chest piece would have been molded red and then painted yellow because all the uh, the limbs and everything, are, I assume, would be yellow painted red. But Now, Jerry, just to let you know, these aren't real lenticulars as I'm popping them out. They are printed lenticular, but you have to put them in the shield in order to use the lenticular thing. It's the shield that <gasps> creates the... The shield has the lens. Uh-huh. So what does the card look like printed? Is it, is it weird? Kind of yeah, it's, it okay. looks like two images on top of each other. Oh, well, okay. You just described lenticular printing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I, I want them even more now. They've separated the lens, which makes sense because that way they make one lens because that's the expensive part of a lenticular. You have one lens and then you just put the card. That is cool. I'm that is cool. That, I, I'm, I'm just <laughs> thinking that in my head. That's awesome. <laughs> There is one that shows Tony Stark. I have all three little cutouts of Lenticular with him, and they're double-sided, so there's a different image on each side, in fact, and one of them is Tony Stark and Iron Man. For you Marvelicious listeners, if you've ever heard me on Star Wars Action News, I kind of have a thing for Lenticulars, but moving on. 
<laughs> so those were the loose ones I got. And that was pretty good. The average price was around 10 a figure with all of the accessories. Serious? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I paid about 20 for Magneto because of the cape, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it, that's one of those things. If you do any eBay shopping, you know, you could actually find a lot of those figures like you described for you know, really reasonable prices. But it's a big range because accessories, the lenticulars, the shield, the paint job. I mean, the range is huge with these based on condition. But I did pick up two parted figures. This is where my heart's racing really fast right now. First, I got a can. Completely mint on a good card. A little bit of a yellowed bubble. Well, come on. Yeah, that's... It's 1984, of course it was. <laughs> and, I mean, you want to talk about great packaging. I love these because there's, like, comic panels on the back, a bio of him, the little proof of purchase from Mattel. Sadly, this trip to Lynn's toy stable and the fact that there are only a handful of Secret Wars figures, there's 16 figures total, yep. I've decided I want to get a complete mint-on-card set and display the figures loose in front of the mint-on-card for the 16. Nice. These will be the only... Marvel figures I do carded or Secret Wars. Nice. That, that sounds like an awesome display. Good luck on the last three, though, but we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> I'm two down. Now, are you going to open the ones that you have that are already carded? I know. I have Kang loose and carded right now. Uh-huh. That's and what so, say, don't, don't open it, Iceman. <laughs> yeah, that is the other carded figure I got. They had Iceman, and I knew, even though I hadn't done a ton of research, Iceman is of legend. Yes. To the listeners of Star Wars Action News who come over to Marvelicious to hear Marjorie and I talk, Iceman is the yak face of the Secret Wars line, because the last wave of Secret Wars figures were only released internationally. That's Constrictor, Electro, and Iceman. But Iceman was the one I knew of, and she had one there. Interesting. And it was $225. No, and you know what? I was just going to say, he's the yak face in theory, but you'd never get a card yak face that cheap. No, but. no. It's a di totally different price range. But yeah. the fact that he was released internationally only. And I hemmed and hawed, and I kept going back and forth, and he was unpunched. And the bubble was unyellow. It was <laughs> so good. Unyellow. <laughs> and Marjorie had just gotten her anniversary gift, so she yes. kept offering to buy this for me. And I kept going, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of money. But I was buying so much, I took Iceman out of the deal. And I said, let me buy everything else I'm buying. Because I also bought a Fantastic Four figure from the movie Fantastic Four. It was Ben Grimm in the spacesuit, and you'd push a button and his thing head would show up. You'd push another button. It was great. It was fun. I'd never seen him before. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually bought that figure for my son when the movie was out and he was like three he thought it was the greatest thing ever i thought it was the greatest thing ever and i'm not i'm 10 times three 12 times three plus three <laughs> sort of quick math there cooler eight times three <laughs> and i picked up a few more of those fantastic four figures i hadn't really seen this movie line of figures by toys biz before i'm actually really freaking impressed with these figures i got dr doom Invisible Girl, Human Torch, and that thing. And the facial sculpts on these are amazing. I mean, they really look just like the actors and actresses. And the play features are either really cool or not too obtrusive. I mean, Dr. Doom has a bit of a problem. He can't put his arms in a good way because he has to squeeze his legs. Chuck Norris and his karate commando kind of move. But the likeness is great. I love the damage on him. 
Invisible Girl, she has a little port in her back. You can squeeze water through her and it'll knock a ball off. But it's a removable pump, so it's just fine. And Human Torch, all right, he does have a bit of a dongle coming out of his bum. But (laughs) the dongle plugs into a mailbox, which rockets him off. And he has a cool translucent fire effect that I really love. I had to pick these figures up. I couldn't pass them by. I opened them up and... All I need now is Mr. Fantastic. But I took Iceman out of the deal and bought everything else because I, I was out of cash. I couldn't put Iceman in my cash deal. I, I'm just laughing. I, I, I need to stop you for a second. I don't mean to interrupt. I'm just laughing because the cooler didn't buy Iceman. <laughs> <laughs> you had to walk out with Iceman. The cooler? I got him for 175 <sighs> Man. Oh, Arnie, that's amazing. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. And we did because Marjorie bought her cups and I bought my toys and I bought the thing and I got a couple other older toys there, like a Spider Woman from the all the Secret Wars toys. Plus I got two other Secret Wars toys. Mint on card, I got the Secret Wars Secret Messages pack, which doesn't go for much. I paid like six bucks for it. It has invisible ink on a pen and a few extra lenticulars and shields for the series. And the shields, you know, there's the good guy shield and the bad guy shield. The good guys got the red circles. The bad guys got the gray squares. It came with one of each and some extra lenticular images and a decoder wheel for secret messages. I picked it up for six bucks mint on mint card. I also picked up the Doom Cycle mint in box. So I between her cups and my toys, we had to ship these things back. But Iceman... No, he wasn't being shipped. We carried him as carry-on luggage through the entire thing, through the Seattle airport, the Las Vegas airport, treating Iceman like gold. Yeah, but I've done this before, so this was nothing new, because I frequently, coming home from Comic-Con or Celebration, I will knowingly and willingly exceed the number of carry-ons to protect collectibles. <laughs> I'm thinking this year you might need to buy an extra seat just to take home a couple uh, helicarriers. Yeah, wouldn't they laugh at that? <laughs> that might be cheaper than FedEx. Yeah, I'm thinking. You know, the great thing about the Iceman figure is if you turn your head, look at it from another angle, you got Silver Surfer, too. <laughs> now, did, did it come with an old Toy Biz uh, sled that you could put with it? <laughs> like, like the Magneto comes with an extraneous cape? <laughs> no, not mint on card, but, no. you know, he's going to be even hard to get loose. He's going to be really hard to get loose. Well, and if you do find him loose... God only knows what condition he'll be in because there's probably going to be a lot of different yellowing that mm-hmm. also occurred on some of these secret wars, particularly like like with Daredevil, like his arms, his legs end up like uh, fading differently than the body because they're typically actually different types of plastics. You've probably seen those in mm-hmm. you know other lines. but Yeah, I'm looking here on eBay. The Constrictor, Electro, and Iceman loose have a starting bid of $464. Whoa. So this, I is, this is a long time wait. There's one very miscolored one who's has a buy it now just Iceman for a hundred five Iceman figures for 700 you know so this is going to be a long trek not a quick sprint I did end up getting a lot right after this I went to look and I got a lot of carded mint on mint card figures the Spider-Man the Black Spider-Man the Silver Claw Wolverine the Black Claw Wolverine for less than 200 less than I paid for Iceman I got about a dozen of them carded Hey, what's funny, I mean, if uh, listeners want to, you know, jump on eBay, you can find a picture of the Electro pretty quickly. But 
the shame of paying that kind of price is that Electro's head is just like the dumbest looking thing ever. <laughs> you seen that? Already? You have that in front of you? I mean, but yeah, that sculpt is just bad. Even by Secret Wars standards, that's bad. You know what, though? I put it in so bad it's good. It's so oh, bad it's hysterical. Oh, all, all of this is great collecting, <laughs> but it's terrible sculpting. <laughs> the one I can't find, Electro is checked off my list. The one I can't even find a listing for, but again, long trek. Not This is a marathon, not a sprint. Constrictor. Yeah. Yep. Maybe Marjorie can keep that in the back of her mind for future holidays. But, you know, in these stores, you never know what you're going to find. We picked up a couple other tchotchkes. I picked up Spider-Man for the Atari 2600. <laughs> nice. I don't even have an Atari 2600, but I'm getting one, and I knew I was getting one. And so I have my first Atari 2600 game here. And Marjorie bought some candy. I did. I bought a Captain America and Wolverine click. It's like a fake Pez. It, they give Smarties instead yeah. of Pez. <laughs> That's great. I know. Smarties are better. This is from 2002 even, so it's not that old. The candy may still be edible if you're brave. Not eating it. Well, just a little compact tablets of sugar. It, it'd probably fine. And I picked up a Howard the Duck Head candy dispenser. Do you guys remember in the 80s? And they still do it now, but it's not as much. They had the little candy at checkout where it's little crappy candy. But now they have like big heads of candy that are maybe two or three inches tall. But back then they'd have like one inch tall, like a candy gizmo when Gremlins was coming out or something. And it would be this cheap, crushable plastic. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, actually. I, I remember those from Star Wars. They had the C-3PO head and the, like the neck would open up and there's like bubblegum bits in there or maybe some sugar candy but those are that's the ones i remember i don't remember gizmo i had the wicket from star wars and it was it was a head and mm-hmm. there was like a little like a like a piggy bag type opening on the bottom yeah a little cap and it just comes out i mean nothing splits in the head the head never separates or anything like that but i had the wicket i had the wicket from that style of candy dispenser well she had three movie howard the ducks <laughs> one was still sealed with candy inside from 1986, mind you. Wow. One was half full. Somebody had opened it, eaten some of the candy, and put it back. <laughs> and one was empty. <laughs> this movie sucks so bad, I'm not even finishing this candy. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up, I got the empty one. I didn't want 1986 candy. I didn't want ants from the past to come out. I didn't want some Prometheus-type event where the candy merged and turned into black goo and caused an evolution and aliens are coming (laughs) for that we thank you (laughs) so i did buy the howard the duck empty candy head and it's so brittle and we treated that very carefully too but that was just a cool find and it really got us thinking you know with the marvel collecting and some of these older toys we could find interesting things at random places yeah, down by us, we have Route 66. We're strolling through our town, so there's a lot of Route 66 sites and businesses that pop up. And one of the most notable in this area is if you're ever here, you need to stop at Becky's Barn, which actually is on an original brick pavement section of Route 66. So it has a little bit of historical significance, but it's this guy that runs it, it's Becky and Rick. He's kind of a local legend. He has been running these type of shops since before I could even drive. I remember walking to his shop with my brother and buying toys because he had a shop 
not too far from where we live, but this guy's been all over town, and now he's down south of Springfield in this great place called Becky's Barn, and I'd been bugging Arnie to go because we used to live right by it, but we never went. Now that we live further away, we took a drive down there, and Arnie found quite a few things. I went to see what he had, and at first I wasn't too impressed. I started with the Star Wars stuff. It was all stuff from the 90s and modern. I'm like, ah, he's got the same stuff I have that I've always seen. I went over and checked his Marvel stuff, and there were just some Marvel Legends that were really overpriced. He wanted like $25 for a Scarlet Witch on the Rider series, Marvel Legend one. Remember that with like the motorcycles and things? Oh, yeah. I ended up getting it for 6 bucks on eBay. So I really wasn't too impressed. But then he took us to Barn 2. It turns out there's three barns. <laughs> and Barn 2 was full of Marvel toys. He had almost an entire series of Ghost Rider mint-on-card figures from the Ghost Rider toys. He had a ton of Spider-Man toys, all this stuff. The problem is, it's called Becky's Barn because it's a barn. It's not air-conditioned. It's not clean. Uh. So, so many of the items there were ruined and yellowed and warped from the humidity. And it was just like, he was trying to sell us stuff. He was going, you know, and he knew his Marvel stuff. He collected Marvel Legends. He was ordering by the case before ordering by the case was in vogue. And telling me about all these variants and things. It turns out he had, it, had their house is right there. He's like, well, if you don't like the condition of this stuff, I keep it in the house in the basement where it's air conditioned. I can go get you better ones. Mm-hmm. And so I started talking to him and I found a few things that were impulse purchases that caught my eye. First of all, I'm still smarting over the fact that Mary Jane and Peter Parker aren't married anymore. That bothers me. <laughs> Oh, I think I know where this is going. Well, he had Marvel's famous couples, Mary Jane and Spider-Man, action figure set from Toy Biz. That is so cool. Mint in box in a great shape. This was limited to 24,000 pieces. Of course, God only knows. I don't know that they make 24,000 SIFs, so this may be a huge number. Arnie, this is so funny. I mean, I, I actually just bought this set in the last couple months myself. Did you really? Yeah. No, no, I have this. This was exclusive to Toys R Us back in the day, and I bought it back then. And I later in life, about 10 years ago, sold a lot of my toy biz stuff because I really was running out of space. And this is one of those nuggets I'm like, man, I should have kept that. I saw it and I'd known about it. I'd seen it in stores because I was an active toy collector at the time. And I probably made some joke about it because this came out in the 90s. But I love the packaging. I love that it came with a collectible pin. I love that it's a really horrible mary jane figure <laughs> do you okay this is a timely review quiz do you guys recognize that mary jane figure phoenix daisy duke from the dukes of hazard line <laughs> no that figure that sculpt debuted in the iron man line as spider woman and then i talked about her as a repaint that turned into a sue storm for the fantastic four line when i was talking about the invisible spider yeah, same body. This body ended up getting used for all kinds of Marvel. In fact, well, that is Mary Jane. She is an actress. I imagine her body gets used for a lot of things. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised, and I have to go look it up, but I wouldn't be surprised if this exact mold wasn't a phoenix at some point in time. Also, her eyes are yellow. It's like she's possessed. Well, if you watch the original animated series, uh, she did take a weird turn on the last season. <laughs> I'm more concerned that Spider-Man looks like the $6 million man. He looks too beefy. 
He it's, he doesn't look even like his animated series self. He does look very 70s, like a football player. Yeah. Roger Staubach as Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. I'm like, it looks more like Flash Thompson wearing a costume than Peter Parker. <laughs> <laughs> but what what's amazing about this figure, and one of the reasons I want to go back and get this, this was the only time you got a Spider-Man unmasked with the Peter Parker head. This Peter Parker head came from, there's a Peter Parker figure made. This body actually comes from Web Glider Spider-Man, which was like a third series release from the Animated Series. Got reused multiple times for all sorts of things. But yeah, this was a very unique release to get just an unmasked Spider-Man, you know, related to the Animated Series line of figures. And, and of course, the only Mary Jane as well. I figured it was the only Mary Jane. The box, the plastic on the front's a little scratched up, so I do plan on opening it and keeping it, you know, pretty Keep the box in good shape, but I'll get the figures out and display them. The box is not in such good shape that I that feel it's justified to display this way. But if I ever run across another one in better shape, it also may be something. Because I just love the heart spider in the background because <laughs> it reminds me of the wedding issue and everything. Marjorie has a shirt with the heart spider on it. Yeah. Well, now that bubble that they're on actually is blistered. So, unfortunately, you will destroy that packaging to get the, them out of there. Ah, it's not just like an inserted tray, you know, that you could just open yeah. it and put them back. In. Yeah, it's blistered on there. Yeah, I was really I was really pissed when I first learned that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Marvel's famous couples ended up being a theme that got repeated a few times. They did a Gambit and Rogue set, kind of inspired from Age of Apocalypse. They did a... Fairly generic Cyclops and Jean Grey, and you know they took this same box size and this two pack concept, and they did it multiple times. I think they did a cloak and dagger one time. So they had several, and in fact, I've got a little bit one of my own to talk a little bit later. But but you know what's funny about the Mary Jane Spider Man two pack? When I bought them, Arnie, I actually was tracking one on eBay for a while, and someone ended up it was a buy it now that had been up for like thirty days plus whatever and someone bought it you know and i was kind of shocked that someone finally got it and i kind of kicked myself because they won like 20 bucks 25 dollars and i thought hey, that's pretty good i'll take that so i was so upset i just jumped over to amazon found one for 12.99 and i said oh crap i gotta buy it for 12.99 when i got it it still had the toys rust sticker on <laughs> the price 12.99 <laughs> <laughs> so i paid like a 1995 retail price in 2012 dollars so booyah <laughs> well, there is apparently one I do need to pick up that's the holiday special one that is Mary Jane all decked out in Santa gear. Yes. And and Spider-Man has a little hat and a camera. Uh-huh. What's he taking pictures of? Uh, no, I, ha I had that set, too. I, that's one that I let go and didn't really feel like I needed to get that one again. <laughs> <laughs> I also impulse bought, now, and I paid eBay price for them. But I got the two Marvel Masterworks sets that Toy Biz did where they recreate covers and just, like, dioramas were in. This was back when Marvel Selects were just starting and they were pre-posed statues as well. I got the Spider-Man and Green Goblin one and then the Fantastic Four number one that has the four members of the Fantastic Four and the Beast of the Mole Mans. That's a set there that has been living at one of the comic book stores that I hit maybe two or three times a year because it's in a smaller town outside of mine and they don't have a bunch of stuff to usually draw me up there too often. But I've looked at that one a few different times and thought about picking it up, but I just don't know where it would fit into my collection because I don't have anything else from that previous Masterworks collection for it to go with. But it's 
it's a good sculpt and it's a cool looking piece. I just thought that, you know, they'd be kind of cool out on their own as accent pieces more than where they'd fit in. And the fact that he had the two there and he got better ones from the house. But the piece de resistance and the thing that I think may make both of you a little bit jealous, maybe not, maybe because you don't collect it. But they had a Spider-Man 2 Spider-Man. It was when I decided I was buying this that I bought the others. Because once my wallet's out, it's I'm doing it. <laughs> no, you're, you're right, Arnie. I'm very jealous of this, and I'll tell you why in a second. Now, this guy would not haggle. I don't know why he wouldn't haggle, but he wouldn't budge on his price form. Pay cash doesn't matter. And this one I saw up there it was $25. What? Yeah, I know. Unbelievable. 25 have, I was like, yeah, maybe. Uh. Have you looked for this guy on eBay? Oh, I did standing in the store, and I walked out with him. <laughs> <laughs> 25 bucks. This is a 18-inch Spider-Man from Spider-Man 2. Hyper-articulated. 67 points of articulation, and they detail all 67 on the back cover. Of course, 40 of them are just in the fingers. <laughs> it does appear that way <laughs> i'd like that they point to one finger that's 51 through 54 oh yeah like every knuckle yeah absolutely <laughs> and it was covered it, actually it wasn't covered but the plastic for some reason was the only part covered in like some kind of solid dirt like dust had accumulated on it to the point that it created super dust that would stick and before i'd even buy it i'm like do you have a wet paper towel or something i could try to get this off with i mean this is nasty <laughs> meanwhile marjorie's typing in the ebay app i'm like i want one of those i don't want this nasty one and maybe 25 is a little high then i see this thing goes for a hundred or more that thing was like more than 24.99 when it came out I think it was $30 because I got a little confession to make. This is the figure that got me looking at Marvel figures again after leaving it behind for a long time. It was around Spider-Man 2 time, and I kept walking by this thing, and I'm like, oh, I just cannot spend $30 on one action figure. I don't care how articulated it is. And every once in a while, it pops up into my memory bank, and now Arnie's rubbing it in my face again here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, uh, Justin, you and I have the exact same story. <laughs> Mine wasn't the price. I thought the price was good. I just didn't know what I was going to do with it. I was just like, you know, I just keep my collecting the five, six-inch figures, the movie line. I'm not going to go there with the big 12-inch, 18-inch. But, man, 67 points. Are t that looks so cool on my desk. And, I, it, you know, it wasn't rare. I mean, I mm -hmm. walked in Toys R Us probably 20 times looking at this thing. Exactly. This was back in the days when I was trying to tell myself no more collecting outside of my focus and i just could not convince myself to get it and i you know i kick myself every once in a while and now i'm sitting here looking at arnie getting it at below retail price seven years later it hurts hurts a little bit i figured with the articulation i didn't know if you knew about this i didn't know about this but knowing that you're such an articulation slut justin <laughs> thought this would be right up your alley i didn't know if the size would turn you off though i didn't know if 18 inches was too big for you <laughs> well I can handle it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's one of those things that I wish I would have picked up because just the novelty of all that articulation just it really pushes all the buttons for me. You know, I would love to sit there and mess around with each individually articulated finger. I could I could waste two hours doing that. <laughs> but here's the thing. 
I have questions for you. I always had concerns that it would get really loosey-goosey and not want to stand up or stay in any position after too long. I think he's perfect to leave just like that. I mean, kind of knowing it's value now, which, I mean, the fact that it's box, the fact that, I mean, everything you just said, Justin, I mean, what do you, you know, there's a lot of risk there. You take the thing out, there's a lot of twist ties, and it's all constricted with all those little thermoform parts that holds them in place. Now, I'd, I'd display that thing probably boxed. I did end up going back. I got an opener. It's not bad. It doesn't have all the articulation I would like. The hips don't move quite right. The fingers are strangely long in order to accommodate the articulation, but it's cool. It's fun. I'm not very good at posing these things. I'm sure you could do better, Justin. Now, what's kind of interesting is that they also made a 12-inch figure about this, you know, same time for Spider-Man 2 that, I don't know, maybe he had like 40 points of articulation, but they had a couple of them that they marketed, you know, that were above the action figure size. So that's that's a great find. That was definitely the grand supreme, super articulated, super posable Spider-Man, though. Yeah, and it made all the rest of the purchases. As we were leaving, I was looking up everything. I'm like, did I get great bargains on anything else? And I paid going value or below for everything I got there. And I was very picky. He kept trying to sell me other stuff. I'm like, your packaging just isn't what I want. I'm not, you know, I don't know that if I bought Ghost Rider figures, I would buy them to keep carded. I would more than likely open them anyway. But I take the overall condition of the card as the environment to which this has been stored and to know if the plastic will have become sticky, if the joints will have become loose based on just environmental conditions. Well, I'll tell you, with some of the early 90s Toy Biz figures, they're going to become sticky anyway. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing, keep in mind, I mean, you know, the retail back then was $25, $30. If they made that figure today on shelf, he'd be He'd be exclusive somewhere and be every bit of 50 bucks. Yeah, very true, if not more. Yeah. So, Jerry, what about you? You're the active older toy collector. I usually just get one figure a week at my comic store. What have you been picking up? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I had the Great Purge back in the early 2000s, got rid of a lot of my toy biz stuff because of storage. And this was back in our previous house, a smaller. I mean, just I couldn't devote 10 Rubbermaids to... uh you know, Marvel Toy Biz collectibles. But like we said with the the Mary Jane Spider-Man 2-pack, there were a few nuggets that I looked back on and said, you know what, I shouldn't have let that one go. I should have kept that one. And I think that's a true sign. You know, if you really love it, it'll come back to you, right? (laughs) So kind of building off the whole Mary Jane Spider-Man 2-pack, I alluded to this earlier. Have you guys ever heard of a cosmic Spider-Man? Yes, I read the comic where Spider-Man became cosmic. It was somewhere in Web of Spider-Man. That's exactly right, or spectacular, one of those two. Well, you know, they actually made a similar two-pack, like a, a box set called Strange Transformations. And it comes with two just beautifully painted, decoed Spider-Man figures. One was a cosmic Spider-Man. And if you look at this, this is a body that's been used on a lot of different Spider-Mans. It is my absolute favorite mold that they use. It has a pretty decent sculpt, got elbow articulation, knee articulation, and one of his hands is in the classic web shooter pose. This was one of the few molds, though, and I I think Toy Biz must have recognized it. They took this mold and they did a normal Spider-Man. They did Black Spider-Man, Bed Riley Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2099 from the Toy Biz is on this mold with a slight variation on his hands. They did Scarlet Spider-Man, and then they came up with this Cosmic Spider-Man. Well, what's very interesting about this set, it was actually an F.A.O. Schwartz exclusive. I don't know if you guys remember those. Well, of course you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you do. There was actually a F.A.O. Schwartz in Indianapolis 
which is pretty close. It's about, you know, 100 miles from Cincinnati. And one morning, my dad gets up Saturday morning. His, you know, the company he worked for was headquartered out in, in, in Indianapolis, and he just needed to go out and have a kind of a quick meeting, whatever. He woke me up and said, hey, I'm running out to Indianapolis. I know there's a that, that toy store you like. You, you want to come? I can drop you off there and go to my meeting. And I just, like, woke up, like, instantly wide awake. I'm like, F.A.O. Schwartz, yeah. Because I knew this was going to be there. I knew it was out. <laughs> and sure enough, I picked it up. You know, again, I got rid of it and, again, did one of those things where I hunted it down. Good luck finding it on eBay, though. I searched and searched and searched, could not find it. Finally just found someone who was selling it on Amazon for about 20 bucks, and, you know, I, I was all in. The other figure that comes with it, though, is one that is also a, a big favorite of mine. It's actually based off the same body that the Spider-Man, you know, Peter Parker head one is based on from the set that you had, the famous couples one. It's a transforming symbiotic Spider-Man. Now, we've seen this several times before, but this is one of the first figures that did that, you know, black costume takeover on, on Spider-Man. It's beautifully painted. I mean, both of these figures are just absolute gems. And Toy Biz did a lot of these little two-packs where they took these little, what I'd call fan favorite, and in some cases, sometimes they would take, you know, canceled figures and find them new homes in sets like these. So the, these little two-packs, these little box sets just always had a special place in my heart. So, yeah, I wanted to share that. That's kind of like Jerry going back and, like, reestablishing 1995 all over again. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, I think, I think this set was actually released in the summer of 97 at FAO Schwartz. Now, my second purchase that I was really happy about. You guys remember the Iron Man animated series from the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. You guys yep. remember U.S. Agent being in that show? I didn't watch every episode, but <laughs> I don't remember it. Well, I remember the U.S. Agent figure from the Captain America line last year. Of course. Okay. Well, you know, the funny thing was he wasn't in the Iron Man animated series in the 90s. But a kind of an interesting thing was is that when Toy Biz would show off the lines, uh, you know, what was upcoming, you know, maybe Toy Fair pictures that, you know, you actually had to wait for a magazine three months later to, you know, to see the lineup. They often would show seven figures in the line. But then they, you know, Toy Biz eventually dialed back and said, you know what, we want six figures per case wave and, you know, 24 figures per case. The math's really easy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, U.S. Agent, who wasn't actually in the show, was scheduled for the third wave of Iron Man, but he got canceled, totally canceled. They pulled him out, left the other six for the wave, never be heard from again. Well, in 1995, Action Figure Digest, Tom Mars, who's actually based out of Dayton, Ohio, they actually had a contest for... You know, you could win one of the prototypes of the unproduced U.S. agent figure. You submitted your contest entries by mail. I sent one letter per day. That's what you're allowed to do because at this time, at this point in my collecting, I had every toy this figure. I was like, well, hey, if there's one unproduced figure, I got to have it. Well, of course, I didn't win. I'm sure the one person who sent in a single letter compared to my, like, 45, you know, probably ended up getting it. But interestingly enough, kind of like Iceman and Yak Face like we were talking about earlier, U.S. agents saw release outside of the U.S., ironically enough. <laughs> and, you know, the most interesting story behind this, I mean, when I was uh, collecting back in the day, you know, somebody out of a magazine had, you know, get your – you know, European release only U.S. agent. And, you know, I shipped the guy $40, called him up, gave him my credit card, and, you know, I had a U.S. agent. 
Well, I picked up another one because, again, got rid of it, figured, hey, that's it's a lot of history with me and U.S. Agent. Interestingly enough, though, I've been doing some, some of the research lately on kind of really what was the story about U.S. Agent. And it kind of sounds like, and I don't know what to believe anymore because there wasn't a lot of researching you could do back then, but it kind of sounded like a, a company called Elegant Way International Company LTD, which I could not find anything about, had this toy produced for a giveaway they were going to do. What kind of giveaway? I have no idea. But Toy Biz wasn't necessarily involved. In fact, when they learned that this was happening, they stopped it. But about 10,000 of these figures got made. <laughs> that's the story. I don't know what's true. I've, I've heard a couple of different things. but that's that, that is really weird. Yeah, that's like yeah. the most interesting. This is like the moral equivalent of like a manufactured bootleg. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I've read a couple of things to like, hey, it just saw foreign release all the way to, hey, we're going to get this toy made because we think people would like it and, you know, of course, people in the U.S. were like, well, hey, ship us some. We want them, too. And Toy Biz was like, wait, what are you doing? We, we didn't authorize this. Very bizarre. I mean, the packaging is the Iron Man Series 3 card, U.S. agent shown on the back, which I think he might have been anyway, and they just were like, hey, he's not coming. But a, a very interesting figure. In fact, Toy Biz was going to keep the mold in use. Series 5 for Iron Man never happened. The show got canceled. They canceled Series 5. They were going to do a figure of the character, the Living Laser and use the U.S. agent's body and just give him a new head. Well, <laughs> that line got canceled. Series 5 never happened. So if you want a legitimate body for this, it actually got used. <laughs> you guys are going to love this. There was a wave of X-Men figures called Mutant Armor, and you're going to love where the story goes. Have you guys ever seen the Charles Xavier Astral Armor figure? He was like a – and Justin, you'll love this. He was a translucent red with <laughs> Charles Xavier's head – and U.S. agent's body. <laughs> <laughs> the figure finally got made. They retooled the left hand for some reason. And, you know, that's how it got produced. What's interesting, though, is that entire Wave 5, Series 5, every figure from that wave got repurposed somehow. Most of them got repurposed into the mutant armor. There was a character named Dark Aegis who got turned into a beast with some sort of armor. So they took this titanium man-like sized armor and put Beast's head on it. They had Iron Man with magnetic armor, and they turned that into Wolverine with anti-magnetic armor. So again, took an Iron Man figure, put Wolverine's head on. And hey, if anybody needs anti-magnetic armor, you know, Wolverine going up against Magneto, that's not a bad idea. There was also another one called Lava Armor, which got repurposed into a Spider-Man line as the Vault Guardsman. So a lot of interesting ties to all these figures that never were. But if you go on eBay and Amazon for about 35 to $50, you too can have a U.S. agent that to this day, I don't know if it's legitimate or not, but it's <laughs> darn cool. <laughs> so how much did you pay, 30 I actually got him for about 30 That's not bad for such a rare figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, not at all. In fact, the card, the one I have here, the card's in beautiful shape. The bubble's perfect. Uh, the figure actually has a really awesome deco. I mean, the the U.S. agent character was uh, in the comics. He has a little bit of a history. He was Captain America for a while. He was part of West Coast Avengers. They disbanded. They formed, you know, Tony Stark formed Force Works, which is how this ties into the show, because Force Works was in the show. But instead of having U.S. agent, they made Hawkeye the stand-in for U.S. agent. 
So it's kind of funny that U.S. Agent even made it to the concept stage of being a figure, but oddly enough, even by this time in toy business history, this was the second U.S. Agent figure to be made. The Captain America from the first 9091 Marvel superheroes, they repainted into a U.S. Agent, which so easy to do. Interesting stuff there. I had no clue about some of this. Yeah, you yes, got my head spinning. Yeah, so I, I kind of wanted to, you know, knowing that we were going to have this theme of the show, I kind of wanted to bring two really weird sets of, uh, you know, toy biz history. So, hope you enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the last bit of kind of unusual toys, Marjorie went to Star Clipper down in St. Louis, a comic store that we go to every once in a while, and she ended up getting a Captain America coffee mug. I got my Loki cologne. They had it in store. I hadn't been able to find it even online, but she also convinced me to pick up, but I think this might have been more her than me, some Japanese blind-packaged Ultimate Spider-Man figures. Hmm. I don't know that it was necessarily all me. You'd pass on them at uh, Forbidden Planet in New York. They only show four characters on the back, Spider-Man, Venom, Green Goblin, and Spider-Man in his alien costume. So I thought we'd do a quick opening of the blind package Japanese, I think they are, figures from the Ultimate Spider-Man line. Now, these Is are it much the Japanese more. characters in the back that gave you the clue that they were Japanese? Yes. Yes, it was. So when you say Ultimate Spider-Man, th- this isn't tied to the cartoon that just started airing, right? No, this is tied to the actual comic. The actual, book. okay, okay. I would tell you the copyright date on these, but I don't speak Japanese. Oh, 2006. I was going to say, they, I, I'm sure in my ignorance, is there different characters for the numbers? So the first one I open, standard red and blue Spider-Man. This is actually kind of cool. First of all, he's articulated. He's got shoulder articulation, ball-jointed neck, swivel hip, knee, and a metallic paint job, and he stands about two inches tall. Wow. You're going to want this one. Oh. I got it. Venom. He's huge. He is. He's very beefy. He's, and he comes with an extra tongue. He comes with a tongue you can stick in his mouth to have the extra tongue action. And a little base. He's probably two and a half inches tall and wide with the muscles and the arms. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a tongue on him? I can stick a tongue in his mouth. There's a little hole in his mouth, and you can go tongue or tongueless. Uh-huh. I don't know. J- Jerry, do you like the tongue? I was just asking for point, you know, for, for clarity. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking for a friend. <laughs> well, it's not me. It's this guy I know. <laughs> Opening the other one. Really I got a second Amazing Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2. <laughs> And Marjorie opened Alien Suit Spider-Man. Now, this is great. He's got a metallic blue-black paint job like Venom does. It's a different sculpt than the regular Spider-Man, too. He's got different hand poses, whereas the first Spider-Man's doing the thwip. This one just has fists. The what? The thwip. The thwip? The thwip. Yeah. The whip. Hey, I'm totally with you, Arnie. I speak thwip. (laughs) I speak comic book bubble. (laughs) <laughs> and he's, he's again got the swivel-jointed hips and articulated knees. He's pretty nice, but he feels very spindly because he's tiny. Yeah, unlike Venom, this guy is tiny. Again, yeah, Venom is just huge. Yeah, so these are cool. We've seen them at Midtown Comics and Forbidden Planet in New York and Star Clipper here, so you may want to check those out. Yeah, those sound kind of fun, especially with a little bit of articulation to them, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's very rare that you find these smaller figures articulated. 
And now to finish off this week's bonus show, over at Now Playing Podcast, we are reviewing all of the Spider-Man movies leading up to the amazing Spider-Man that's just over a week away. If you go over to NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can hear us review the two television movies they did, Spider-Man from 1977 and then Spider-Man the Chinese Web, otherwise known as Spider-Man the Dragon's Challenge. And if you listen to that one, you even get to hear us talk about Spider-Man, the Japanese TV show that they did in the 70s. Which has the best theme song ever. Hey, 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 wow. (laughs) It's my ringtone. I think I have vague childhood memories of that show somehow. You can watch the whole series, all 42 episodes, 41 in a movie, but the movie's only 23 minutes, at Marvel.com. It's enthralling, where a alien from the planet Spider visits Japan and gives a dirt bike racer the powers of the Spider-Man, <laughs> including a magic bracelet that allows him to control Lepardon, a Voltron-like super robot, and they use, like, the latest in 1970s Godzilla movie technology to have giant robeast battles like Voltron. Nice. But this is live action, I'm telling you. Not cartoon. <laughs> See, I have these memories of like all these like just whitewashed downtown nondescript buildings. That was the American version that aired in the 70s you're thinking of. Oh, okay. Then yeah, I need that to had both of these out. Yeah, <laughs> you may. <laughs> you can also go to the Venganza Media Gazette and read my reviews of the TV episodes. There were only 14. We'll discuss them over there. But here I'm continuing my look at the Peter David novelizations, now at the Middle Child Spider-Man 2, where after seeing what he did with his first Spider-Man novelization, and really I'm just biding my time to figure out if he can make any sense out of Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man 2 was the obligatory middle chapter. Looking at the novelizations of the Spider-Man films had me excited as all three were written by Peter David. Not only is David one of my favorite authors, but his being the author for all three adaptations, I wondered if his books might, on their own, form a trilogy outside of the movies. Would there be common threads in writing, character moments, or subplots that continue from novel to novel not found in the film? Novelizations are always a way to more deeply explore a movie you enjoy. Reading the author's interpretation of character thoughts and motivations, as well as seeing scenes often cut from the screenplay long before actual production began, as well as scenes added by the author that help enhance the story or, in some cases, meet a minimum word count. But an entire trilogy by one author had some promising allure. As shown in such works from Lord of the Rings to Star Wars' Thrawn trilogy, a novel trilogy can be a rich and engaging affair, and the world David created in the first novel, as closely based on Raimi's universe as it was, was one I wanted to revisit. David had added touches, such as scenes from Peter Parker's childhood long before the movie started, and a journal in which Peter Parker wrote to his dead parents, both things you can hear about in my review of that first novelization in Marvelicious Toys issue 41. But coming to this novel, my big question was what carryovers would there be? Things in David's original novelization, but not in the movie. And unfortunately, I discovered very quickly the answer is not many. After reading his adaptations of both Hulk films, Iron Man, and now these Spider-Man books, I've learned David is a very strict novelizer. He takes a screenplay and puts it on a page. While he does take some liberties, adding a couple of scenes here and there not in the film, the overall sense I get 
is he always tries to be faithful to the source material. And in the case of Spider-Man 2, David is faithful to the point of virtually abandoning all the things added in his first novel. The point here seems to be to allow people to pick up a Spider-Man 2 novelization with no prerequisite of having read his Spider-Man 1 adaptation. So gone are such wonderful flourishes as Peter's journal to his parents, and only very brief mentions are made of Peter as a young boy not trusting Aunt May or Mary Jane's relationship with her abusive father. But as I've mentioned in previous reviews, David loves to use different techniques in every novel to give us some point-of-view scenes from the characters. He's done so in every novelization I've read for this series, and he does here as well. But this time, for the first time, the head we go inside is not that of our hero, Spider-Man, but of Otto Octavius, the big baddie of this film, Dr. Octopus. If you hear our review of the movie Spider-Man 2 over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll hear some questions as to Ock's motivations. In the film, he seems like an altruistic scientist at the beginning, but once his experiment goes bad and the inhibitor chip that keeps his arms from exerting control over him breaks, he goes on a crime spree and talks to his arms as if they're people. Yet, at the end, a bump on the head and he's himself again. It's all portrayed in the film in a way that's both easy to understand, but it has some problems if you think too hard about it. But that motivation is something David would have to portray in this book, and he does so by allowing us access into Octavius's inner monologue with his arms. In the movie, we hear only Otto's side of the conversation, but in the book, we get to hear both. After the chip breaks, the arms speak to him, four voices, what one message, speaking in unison. They refer to him as father, and they're a quartet of mischievous, vain children. David writes them similar to the snake in the Garden of Eden, tempting and offering knowledge, telling Octavius the things he wants to hear, things that make him feel better, all the while promoting violence and crime. Why are the arms evil? Perhaps because they're self-interested, like greedy children. They have a strong self-preservation streak that goes throughout the novel. They refer to Octavius as father. It's respectful to him, but also offering to aid him. It's an interesting relationship that becomes even more so at the book's climax when Otto struggles to regain control, and it really helps to define this character in a way that the movie didn't. David also goes into why Otto would be stealing bags of gold coins like a 1940s train robbery movie. In the book, Otto realizes what Stuart did during our podcast review, that it's really stupid for Otto to steal money so he can buy parts for his new machine. Another such call-out is made when Octavius makes his deal with Harry Osborn. Otto could just take what he wants, but in the book, it spells out that Otto hates Spider-Man. He blames him in part for his failure, so he agrees to Harry's deal more to give himself a reason to hunt down the spider than because he has to to get the tritium. So several nice call-outs done throughout the novel showing Octavius's inner thoughts. But we do also get inside the head of Peter Parker, but in a more peculiar way. In the movie, there's one scene that really stood out where Peter has a talk with Uncle Ben, who is, of course, dead. And it's not a graveside visit, and in the movie... Peter's sitting in his uncle's car having a discussion. As seen on the film, it could be read and probably should be read as Peter having an internal dialogue with his personification of his uncle, but it also could be read as Peter being visited by a ghost. In the book, there's not one of these scenes but several, with Ben speaking to Peter while he's awake and asleep. Anytime he thinks of anything other than protecting everyone, Ben's voice is there chastising him and reminding Peter of his part in Ben's death. Early on in this novel, I wasn't sure if David was portraying Ben as an inner voice or a ghost, and Ben becomes rather harsh with Peter in ways that I didn't feel were true to the character of Ben. But it's later revealed that Ben's voice is a manifestation of Peter's own guilt. While Otto has a computer in his head making him hear voices, 
Peter's guilt and the stress of trying to protect all of New York City has pushed him to the breaking point, and it's through Ben that Peter is able to come to his own resolution as well. While both these sights inside the character's mind did add to the novel, I don't feel either worked as well as Peter's journal of the last book, mainly because in both cases here, the voices are antagonistic, telling the character what to do against their own will, rather than exploring why the characters do what they do. It's just more superficial and less interesting. But that's not Peter's only internal monologue. He also has discourses with himself. In Spider-Man 2, Peter acts in contradictory ways. He pushes Mary Jane away while at the same time longing after her, trying to see her show while also thinking he can't afford to be close to her, saying Spider-Man no more than running into a burning building. Watching the film, I felt the character's motivations were completely justified. When he quits being Spider-Man, he tries to be with Mary Jane. And when he has to be Spider-Man again, he has to push Mary Jane away again. But the film, in an attempt to make our hero seem good, glosses over a fact that David doesn't in the novel. Peter has pushed Mary Jane away, and then she goes and tries to live her own life. She becomes engaged, and then he tries to break her up with her fiancé. In the podcast movie reviews, I accused Mary Jane of being a bit of a drama queen. But this shows clearly that Peter is equally dramatic, causing as much chaos in Mary Jane's relationships as she did herself in the first movie. David does try to spin this in the best possible light, Peter fighting between what he wants and what he thinks he should do, and that's a dichotomy that could come across as very real. There are many instances in life of the heart wanting something and the brain thinking something else, hence the truism, the heart wants what the heart wants. But here, Peter calls himself out for being a bit of a stalker, a bit jealous, and potentially disastrous to Mary Jane's relationship. But David also gives that payoff, that Peter stays away from Mary Jane's wedding as his choosing to end the drama, to let Mary Jane go, to be happy. And it was always that way, but here it feels more like the conclusion of a well-formed character arc in this novel, an arc that wisely includes Peter's confession to Aunt May about what really happened the night Uncle Ben died. It's a great way to explore the character of Peter Parker in greater depth than what we find in the movie. And lest Peter be seen in a negative light, Mary Jane herself is given more fleshing out. It's shown in the film that she doesn't really love John Jameson, the scene where she's trying on her wedding dress and her bridesmaid lambastes her for not loving John enough for marriage. But in the book, it's shown even more clearly that her actions are really reactions to her rejection by Peter. There's a great scene where Mary Jane and John get engaged, and he then wants to tell people, and Mary Jane has a moment of hesitation. Initially, it felt like they were playing a game, and once John told other people, it would become real. And this is something that I don't know anyone who can't relate to. There's always the entertaining of fanciful ideas, be it moving far away for a job, or going off to be with someone you love, and it always seems like a wonderful fantasy, but then when you start to tell others, a harsh reality settles in. And... Having Mary Jane have that struggle and that internal conflict really helped humanize her and make her feel more like a real person. And it also makes you feel bad for John Jameson, but it does show that Mary Jane and Peter have a bond, and we, as the audience or the reader, want to see them together, even if it does hurt the good-looking rich astronaut in the process. David does throw John Jameson a bone, though, as Mary Jane Bridemaid picks him up right there at the wedding. And... Mary Jane's fiancé, John, is a stock character in the movie. Here in the book, he is fleshed out more, though perhaps in unrealistic ways. He's shown as an ideal smooth talker, a brave risk-taker due to his profession, a really likable guy. They make repeated references to him possibly someday becoming a politician with his ability to talk to people. 
even when Mary Jane calls off the wedding at the end. John is unflappable and handles it with grace. Perhaps that's a good way to make us not feel that Mary Jane and Peter conspired to really screw over this guy leaving him at the altar, but it also helps make you not feel sorry for John. And some of the best scenes in the book revolve around this character of John Jameson. David's singular best addition to this novel is a scene early on. It takes place before the events of the movie ever begin, where John takes Mary Jane out to a fine restaurant to introduce her to his father, J. Jonah Jameson, publisher of the Daily Bugle and Peter Parker's boss. It's a great scene, and it shows Mary Jane charming the pants off Jonah, being the first of John's girlfriend able to accomplish that. She plays to Jameson's ego in ways that are so true to the characters, both in their movie and comic incarnations, and shows that she's really taken with John, enough to put on this show that does lead to the altar. It also allows a bit of a tete-a-tete between her and Jonah about Spider-Man, which adds realism. I mean, Mary Jane's life was saved by Spider-Man twice, but her father-in-law-to-be is the man who hates Spider-Man the most? Surely this conversation had to happen. It's unrealistic any other way. And David presents it in a way that feels real and is also a showcase for Jonah's Spider-Man hatred. This is something obviously important to David as he shoehorned it in the first novelization. Here it's done far better as Jameson explains who the true heroes should be and why he loathes Spider-Man for hiding behind a mask. Now, I mentioned that scene takes place before the events of the movie. David does start his novel earlier than the film, with the first two chapters being set before the movie started, with Peter's pizza delivery scene. The second chapter is the Mary Jane chapter, but the first chapter is an action scene, something for Spider-Man to do out of the gate, and it involves Otto Octavius. Otto is headed to Empire State University to give a talk in Peter's class taught by Kurt Connors, but on the way, the campus is attacked by a giant robot out to kidnap Otto. The scene plays to portray Otto as the classic absent-minded professor, more aware of his own notes than his own safety. But it also provides a meeting between Octavius and Spider-Man before Otto's machine goes critical. And truth be told, the first chapter is not well done. Rather than enhance the relationship between Otto and Spider-Man, it confuses it. Now Spider-Man is seen as Otto's savior and then later his attacker and saboteur. It makes Otto more conflicted and the entire already hazy relationship even more hazy. And next, in the Spider-Man universe that Raimi has created, a random giant robot doesn't fit. You just don't expect a sentinel to go walking through the middle of Spider-Man 2. In the movies, Raimi goes through great pains to provide suspension of disbelief about all the fantastical elements. A man who crawls along walls will spend 30 minutes exploring that in DNA manipulation. A super strong man who can fly on a glider will show that. It's science. These pseudoscience explanations help us with our suspension of disbelief in all the Spider-Man movies, which is part of the reason a meteorite-carrying evil space goo landing in Central Park feels so out of place in Raimi's universe in Spider-Man 3, because everything else, all the other superpowers, are so well-established. But here, we just have a giant robot. We don't have any clue how it was funded, how it was built. Just a giant robot. And what does the robot want? It wants Octavius's arms, not his biological ones, but his mechanical ones. The pilot of the robot is an Australian mercenary named Jack All, and that's Jack All, A-L-L, two words, not the Spider-Man villain Jackal. Well, Jack All heard Octavius had powerful weapons, and he hoped to steal them from the scientist and sell them on the black market. 
Now, from the research I've done asking you listeners of Marvelicious Toys on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Wikipedia and everything else I can find, I cannot see anything in which Jack All is a character in the Marvel Universe that David is giving a cameo to. Nor does this scene set up or explain away anything in the actual plot of the story. It's action for action's sake and stupid action to boot. It is a very rare Peter David misstep. But while Jack All may be an original character, David does include a number of references to the larger Marvel Universe that he knows so well. Henry Pym, known as Ant-Man, is one of Otto's peers in attendance at his experiment, and some quite obvious references to his powers are made. The same goes for some other Spider-Man supporting characters. In the previous novel, David dropped a reference of Liz Allen being the nerdy girl on the school bus. Well, here she's an attractive girl from Peter's High School who always had her eyes on Flash. Gwen Stacy is also mentioned as a smart classmate of Peter's, something that meshes quite well with how Raimi would use her in the next film. Finally, a homeless man can't remember who he used to be, and a hyperbolic reference to the King of Atlantis is made. David also makes funny, ironic references to many more items from the Marvel Universe. Peter wishes briefly he could manufacture a tracing device to follow people. Peter wishes John Jameson could be a werewolf so he'd have a reason to hate the man. And even Hulk is mentioned in such a way that could have him really exist or be a fictional character in the Spider-Man universe. Plus, David gives Stanley his own cameo as there's an entire passage revolving around an elderly Mr. Lieber who witnesses Spider-Man chasing a speeding car. For those who like these little literary Easter eggs, there's plenty in here to find, and those who hate them will likely be pestered throughout the book. But despite these additions, this is an adaptation of the story told in Spider-Man 2, and depending on how you feel about that movie will strongly influence your opinion of this book. I find David's prose engaging, his sense of humor amuses me, and he can do both action and drama with equal aptitude. It's why I always gravitate to reading a story with his name on it. But there's not much here that makes this book a must-read. A few nice moments here and there, such as the ones I listed, are but a small percentage of this 311-page novel, and I found myself wishing for more. I wanted more of an exploration of character motivations than David gives. I wanted more ties to the first movie than Raimi put in the actual movie. And David provides few. I wanted supporting characters to be more fleshed out, and a few are, but I wanted a real analysis of why Peter loses his powers halfway through, and what we get is pretty much the same as in the movie. So I have to label this book as easy to skip. It's a good book, but I got more insight into the film Spider-Man 2 by watching the deleted scenes and commentary tracks on the newly released Blu-ray edition than I did by reading this novel. David's straight-on adaptations are great for those who want complete verisimilitude between book and movie, but that makes it such that if you've seen the movie, there isn't much point to reading the book. Which is, perhaps, why there doesn't appear to be a novelization of The Amazing Spider-Man on the horizon. One thing I've noticed as I've done my Avengers and now Spider-Man book reviews is they stopped. Iron Man 2 is the last adult novelization of a Marvel Comics movie that I can find. Perhaps other readers like I just started to not see a point in it. But I do want to end by giving David a shout-out for explaining one gaping plot hole of all of Raimi's Spider-Man movies, and that's where does he get his suit, and why does he have to steal the one back from Jameson's office rather than just wear another? His was pretty thrashed at the end of Spider-Man 1, he has a new one in Spider-Man 2. If he sews them, can't he sew another? And if he doesn't sew them, he can't be buying off the rack. Well, the answer is explained in this novel that it was made for Peter by the costume designer hired by the Flying Dutchman, the wrestlers Peter impressed his one night as the human spider at the wrestling arena. 
now famous as Spider-Man, Peter can't go back to give more, but he was given two costumes and the Green Goblin destroyed the first. So thank you, Mr. David, for putting that issue to bed. And with that, I move on to David's novelization of Spider-Man 3, the book I really want to read. As I mentioned in this very review, I feel like Raimi's handling of Venom left much to be desired, and as an author who boasts having written for every major Marvel character, I'm hoping David can feel the holes left in Raimi's script. Though with the straight novelizations David's given so far, I'm not sure if he will. So please join me in the next issue of Marvelicious Toys, July 1st, as I give my final installment of the movie novelization series, and join me along with Stuart and Jacob over at NowPlayingPodcast.com as we review all the Spider-Man movies, including the two TV movies from the 1970s, and if you go to the archives, you can find our reviews of every movie based on Marvel Comics, from X-Men to Kick-Ass to Ghost Rider to even Man-Thing. It's all at NowPlayingPodcast.com. So that is our show for this week. We will be back on July 1st with our regularly scheduled programming as we gear up for San Diego. Yeah, it's creaming up on us faster than, than I care for. I mean, I'm excited for it, but geez, I don't know if I'm prepared yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jerry, thank you for joining us for this bonus episode. Sure, thanks for having me. So until next time, true collectors. Make mine marvelous. Thank you for listening to this episode of Marvelicious Toys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help our show by leaving a positive review for the show on iTunes. There's even more Marvelicious content at our website, MarveliciousToys.com. At the site, you can see pictures of the products we discussed, fight for Marvel toys, talk and trade with the Marvelicious forums, and much more. It's all at MarveliciousToys.com. We want to hear your thoughts on Marvel collectibles. You can leave reports of your latest toy finds as well as product reviews on our voicemail at 803-MARVEL-4 or email an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at MarveliciousToys.com. Marvelicious Toys is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. Podcast enhancement by Barrett. Marvelicious website design by Jason. Graphic design by Justin. Announcements by Brock. The Marvelicious theme song, Bam Pow Kablam, is composed by Joe Harrison. See more of Joe's work at www.starwarsfanworks.com slash lionsmouth. If you also like Star Wars, Star Wars Collecting is covered weekly at our other podcast, Star Wars Action News, which you can find at swactionnews.com. Marvel Comics and all of the Marvel Multiverse contains are the intellectual property of Marvel Entertainment Incorporated, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Marvelicious Toys is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2010, all rights reserved. Welcome to issue four to three of Marvelicious Toys. I'm Marjorie. Four to three? Yeah, apparently. That's like a score. My tongue is cold from the limes and my limeate. Sorry. Well, warm up your tongue and then let's go. Hey, now. You want me to do it again? Yes, please. (laughs) With your tongue. (laughs) Jerry, hello! (laughs) Hello, Jerry. It is a reproduction of... The first time the lizard met Spider-Man. Amazing Spider-Man number seven, I believe. Thanks, nerd. 
And you get an exclusive bonus DVD. <laughs> Have you DVD seen with it. the podcast we do? Just out of curiosity. What's funny is I don't think my Walmart listed a midnight. I think their little signage on the, you know, theft detecting whatever doodad they call it. I don't think it listed midnight. That's interesting. Crap, it was number six. I was wrong. Here I was trying to be so good. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> nice one, dork. God. <laughs> So it, it's good that we can, you know, we can get together and, you know, not fight. <laughs> <laughs> Although you did threaten me on the last show I was on, just to just be clear. And I, I have it on tape. <laughs> really? You a, put it on a magnetic medium? Well, yeah, because from my, you know, from where I'm from. Anyway. Your car has a cassette deck? Maybe. <laughs> you know, I used to have to burn all my podcasts to CD to listen to them in my car or at work, and then I'd throw the disc away when I was done, and after I went through about 100 discs, I decided to break down and finally buy one of those Apple-branded iPods. I can only imagine having to record them on tape. <laughs> and this has been another episode of First World Problems, circa 2003. <laughs> <laughs> if you hear this rustling, she wrapped all of these figures individually in Zyrtec bags, so I kept the correct accessories with the correct people. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> ben Grimm in the spacesuit, and you'd push a button and his thing head would show up. You'd push another button. It was great. It was fun. I'd never seen him before. <laughs> his oh gosh. thing head would show. <laughs> <laughs> you push my button, my thing head shows too. That's very true. Yeah, I remember, Jerry, you talked about that constrictor at one point, didn't you? Mm, or am no. I imagining things? I think you're dreaming timely reviews again. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I tend to do that. <laughs> Are they there behind you in a bag? I thought I had them there, but I forgot. No. Okay. No, they're in a big paper bag. Ah, right here. <laughs> Jesus, did you put the mic in the bag? <laughs> I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the sound of the fork truck to, like, pull it off of the, uh... <laughs> Beep!